me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. A pilot of an airplane doesn't have to do much in order to end up in the wrong place. There is a subtle shift between being on course and being way off course. For example, a flight from Michigan to Honolulu only requires a subtle one degree shift off course in order to end up in the ocean 80 miles away from Honolulu. And the longer that the pilot stays off course, the farther he will be away from his target. Christian, it doesn't take much to get off track in the spiritual realm either. There is a subtle shift between being on course and heading off course on a path towards spiritual destruction. And the difference is in how we determine true north, so to speak. And for us, we cannot turn away from what saved us in the first place. And that is that we believe that Christ alone is sufficient for salvation. Paul's point has been in this letter to the Colossians that Christ accomplishes the work of salvation from beginning to middle to end. So beginning, that's our initial conversion. Middle, that's what's going on right now, our sanctification and end, glorification. Christ accomplishes that through His salvation of us. And therefore, our responsibility is to trust in Him alone. And the problem in their church, the Colossian church, is is a danger in our day as well. And that, that, that is that, that there were false teachers who rose up and claimed that they had the spiritual elixir. They had the secret potion to guarantee a right standing with God and it actually was a, a mixture of Christ plus their works, their man-made rules. And yet the Scriptures are clear that we must stay on course. We must not buy into that sort of deception. We don't need Christ plus our works. We, we, we don't need empty religion. Our faith must firmly be rooted in Christ alone. I think that's uh, a theme that Paul wants to show us here in this next paragraph, Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 8. Would you follow along as I read? This is the Word of God. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority, and in Him you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and in the and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, 
having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And this truth that, that we, we see in this text is very simple and yet very important. We cannot miss this truth. That is that Christ is all that we need for life and godliness. Christ is all that we need for life and godliness. So easy for us to, to get sidetracked, to get off course just a little bit from what is our true north. And it can have disastrous effects both temporally and eternally. And so Paul warns the believers here about this danger of empty religion. In verse 8, the danger of empty religion. He begins by giving, I think, what the main command is for this whole paragraph, and it is there at the very beginning, beginning, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy. Don't let anyone capture you. Paul already mentioned the danger in verse 4. He said, I I write this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Now he's saying, make sure that no one takes you captive. This this phrase, take you captive, comes from one Greek word that was used to describe the plundering of a ship of of its goods. And so Paul's saying, we believers need to be on guard against those who are setting a disastrously spiritual trap against us. They're they're plundering the goods that have been established in us. And of course, as with all good traps, the trap is not covertly evil. Uh, It's not overtly evil, excuse me. It's not clear that it is a trap. It blends in with its surroundings and it seems to be something that's good. It seems to be a firm footing that you can put your foot on. But instead, it has disastrous results. So, I think for us, there is very little danger in us being drawn away to something as obvious and overt as Satanism. Instead, the trap that we will often be tempted to follow, the one that's appealing to us as believers is often religious in nature, as we'll see next week. It's filled up with all sorts of rules and man-made ideas for how we can have a right relationship with God. It appeals to the desires that we have spiritually to please God. And yet, those kinds of desires can be used by the deceivers to draw us away to some kind of legalistic or man-made religion. Paul gives us a nature of what this trap will look like in the next line of verse 8. He says, through philosophy and empty deception. So don't let them take you captive through this means. It's going to look religious, but it's actually this, this philosophy and empty deception. Now the object of the preposition, the kind of trap that is being set, the object of the preposition through is philosophy. So that's the main idea. Don't let anyone trap you with this philosophy. Now, we might look at that and say, well, that must mean that all philosophy is bad. But I think the word and here means when it says through philosophy and empty deception, 
I think it has the idea of with. So that it's philosophy with empty deception. Because philosophy in and of itself is not inherently evil. Philosophy is simply the study of knowledge. I think godly people can study what knowledge is and how we attain knowledge. I think that's completely appropriate. In fact, we often talk about the philosophy of church ministry. Right? So how is it that we're going to carry out ministry? We simply study how churches do ministry and then we, we make a decision on how we should do it. So philosophy in and of itself is not inherently evil. The problem with this philosophy that Paul's warning against is that it is combined with emptiness and deception. It's a philosophy that comes with empty deception. These false teachers were claiming to have some kind of higher knowledge that put their beliefs not even just on par with, with what the Scriptures teach, but actually in superiority over them. You want to have a right relationship with God? Come and see us. We'll tell you. We've had visions, as we're going to see next week. We've come up with these set of rules that need to be obeyed. And if you just follow us, then you'll be sure that you have a right relationship with God. That's why this philosophy is so dangerous, because it actually is empty and worthless. And the man-made rules that are set up amazingly actually don't keep a person from sin. They actually um, justify the sin for the person in their mind. We'll see that more next week. Notice why this philosophy is empty and worthless. There's three prepositional phrases that describe this empty philosophy. First, it's according to the tradition of men. Do you see that in the text? Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with human traditions, right? Our country has lots of great traditions. Your family probably has lots of great traditions. Like on certain days of the year, you do certain things. That's okay. But apparently what the false teachers were calling for believers to adopt were these human traditions that actually caused them to let go of the commands of God. So they've adopted these traditions to the exclusion of what God had commanded them. Like in Mark chapter 7, verse 8, where the, the Pharisees are upset at the, at the disciples because they didn't ceremonially wash before they ate. They didn't get ritually purified before they ate their food. And do you know how Jesus responded? He said, you have let go of the commandments of God and you're holding on to human traditions. So here's the problem with human traditions. It's when they are to the exclusion of the commands of God. When we hold on to human traditions to the exclusion of the commands of God, then we actually have participated in, we have actually engaged in false worship. So, Paul says the reason why this philosophy is so dangerous is first, because it adopts the traditions of men to the exclusion of the commands of God. Secondly, it's according to the principles, the elementary principles of the world. The word elementary could also be translated as basic, just the most base level principles of the world. And it could be just some of the basic ideas of our fallen culture, fallen world. But more likely, it's, it's in line with what, how Paul has been using this idea, these, the, the, um, the principles of the world in chapter 1, verse 16, chapter 2, verse 15. He's talking about the rulers and authorities of the world. And so more likely, Paul's talking about the demonic spiritual beings. 
so this empty religion is so dangerous because not only is it embracing a human tradition to the exclusion of God, God's commands, but it's also being driven by or sourced in the very demons that are led by Satan. The enemies of God. That's what's driving this empty religion. And so what are they going to do? They're going to lead us astray. That's why this empty religion, this philosophy is so dangerous. And this is probably the most fundamental reason why this empty religion is so dangerous. You should see this in your text at the end of verse 8. It's not according to Christ or rather than according to Christ. So this philosophy is based on the traditions of men. The, the, it's sourced in the elementary principles, the rulers of this world. And it's not based on Christ. It's not consistent with Christ's supremacy over all things. It's not consistent with Christ's sufficiency for all things. And here's one of the ways that we can detect whether something is true or not. Here's how we can detect if error is being taught. Does what is being said challenge the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ? Does it marginalize Christ's supremeness over all things? Does it minimize Christ's sufficiency for all things? And so that's where Paul's going to focus the rest of the text. He's going to say, see, that's why that, this is so dangerous. Because it actually marginalizes those things. The sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. So first, the supremacy of Christ in verses 9 and 10. The supremacy of Christ. Here's what Paul wants to go back to. Something that he's already made clear in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Christ is supreme over all things. He's supreme over the universe because he's the creator. He's supreme over redemption because He gave Himself for us. Christ is supreme. And here's what Paul wants to remind us in verse 9. He is fully God. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So this gives us a window into what the false teachers were claiming. Apparently they were claiming that Jesus wasn't enough that they needed to add something to Jesus. Paul wants to make clear to them and to us that in Jesus is the fullness of God. Jesus is not a little God. Jesus is not a lesser God than the Father. He is, in His very essence, God. His very substance is God. That's why it says, in Him all the fullness of deity All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form in Jesus Christ. Now look back to chapter 1, verse 15. See this similarly stated by Paul. Chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Christ is the image of the invisible God. Or in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. And Christ holds all things together by the word of His power. In the Old Testament, God's presence dwelt on earth in a temple, but now we have a better expression of God's presence. We have a better expression of who God is. It is in the person the, the person who came to this earth in bodily form, Jesus of Nazareth. 
He is the exact representation of who God is. So, if we want to know who God the Father is, we look at the Son. He is fully God. He is supreme over all things. And therefore, He cannot be marginalized. He cannot be added to. There's nothing to add. He is fully God. Secondly, He is the authority of all authorities. See if you can see why I say that. Look at the second part of verse 10. And He is the head over all rule and authority. The word head there, He is the head over, means He's the authority. That's why I say that. Jesus is the authority over all authorities. So when it comes to rankings, there's no one that outranks the Son of God. He is the supreme being in the universe. He is God. He is fully God. He is supreme over all things. And so anything or anyone that marginalizes Jesus as the supreme being in all the universe is teaching a false doctrine is turning you away from the faith that was handed down to you from the apostles. Jesus is supreme. The second way that they were marginalizing the genuine message of salvation, the genuine way that we can have a right standing with God is by marginalizing the sufficiency of Christ in verses 10 through 15. Notice the statement there at the beginning of verse 10. And in Him you have been made complete. In Him. So now we're going to talk about all the blessings that come from being in Christ. And you'll notice it because of this phrase that's repeated, in Him. Verse 10, in Him you have been made complete. Verse 11, in Him uh, you were also circumcised with a circumcision without hands. Verse 12, having been buried with Him and raised up with Him. Verse 13. At the end of the verse, He made you alive together with Him. And then verse 16. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. Paul's now going to lay out some of the blessings that we already know. Probably all of these we know. But his logic goes like this. In verses 9 and 10, Christ is supreme. Christ is the authority of all authorities And here's the great news for us. We are in Him. And therefore, we are made complete because we're in Christ. Not because of something that we build up over here. It makes us uh, build some kind of a ladder to God. We are in Him because we, we receive all these great blessings and this right relationship with God because we're in Christ. Now, the fact that we're in Christ and we're made complete does not mean that we become God or we we become a God, but rather that we are united with Christ and therefore we have nothing to add to Christ. We have nothing to fear from our enemies either. Christ is sufficient to bring us to completion. Christ is sufficient to bring us to completion. The first way that we see that shows four ways. Paul shows four ways that we've been made complete. First, the first means is that we are circumcised in our hearts. Verse 11. Circumcised in our hearts. The reason I say 
in our hearts is because of the first line in verse 11. And in Him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So we're not talking about a physical circumcision. We instead have had a spiritual ritual that God has performed on us that did much more than what the physical circumcision did for the Old Testament believer. For them, it consecrated or, or, or set them apart physically. And what God has done is He's actually circumcised our hearts. He set us apart spiritually from the sins of the flesh by transforming our hearts. And the power of this circumcision of the heart comes from the circumcision of Christ. Notice in verse 11. In the second part of the verse, it says, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Notice what was removed here from Christ. Not simply a piece of flesh like Old Testament circumcision, but His whole flesh, the body of flesh. So that Christ, in a representative way, removed His whole body, which represents the fleshly nature. And how did He do that? He did it at the cross. Why did He do that? Well, He did... He did that as a representation for us of removing this body of flesh. I mean, the Old Testament circumcision symbolized this purification ritual that that set a person apart for God's purposes externally. And Jesus now is consecrating Himself by dying in the flesh as a symbol to what happens to us being removed from the old body of flesh so that we can be transformed completely spiritually. So the first means is circumcision of the heart. The second means is found in verse 12, and it is baptism of the Holy Spirit. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the working of God. Now, at first glance, this might look like water baptism, that we've been buried with Him in baptism. But the context that Paul is using here is talking about what it is that makes us complete. Right? Look back up to verse 10. In Him you have been made complete. So how have we been made complete? Well, through the circumcision of our heart, talking about regeneration, and through the baptism of the Spirit. So I don't think this is talking about water baptism because we're not made complete through water baptism. Instead, uh, what Christ has done is He's actually he's baptized us in the Spirit. It's what happens when every church-age believer initially comes to salvation in Christ. That the Holy Spirit baptizes them into the body of Christ. Now we are joined into the family of Christ. This is something that happens without us really thinking about. It doesn't happen uh, visibly, tangibly. Something that God does judicially. He baptizes us by the Spirit into the body of Christ the universal body of Christ. And the expression, the fact that we have been baptized by the Spirit, the way that we express that is through what? Water baptism. We show that we have been baptized by the Spirit by being water baptized. It's simply a, a visible expression of that. And we show that we're in the body of Christ universally by joining a church. That's um, local church membership. So it's an outward visible expression of an inward reality. And so what Paul's saying is you have been made complete by regeneration, by being baptized into the body of Christ, and then thirdly, by being raised up through faith. Look at verse 12. 
The second part of the verse says, and you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. We've been given this regenerated heart. We've joined the family of Christ. And then thirdly, we've been raised up with Christ. We've been made alive through faith. We have been brought back from the dead spiritually to spiritual life. And then the fourth way that we have been made complete is found in verse 13. And it is that that we were made alive. We were made alive. Circumcised in the heart, baptized by the Spirit, raised up through faith, and then made alive by God. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him. Now, let's think about all these ways in which we have been made complete. Because if we go back through them, starting with the very first description, which is the the summary description in verse 10, in Him you have been made complete. Do you notice the the voice of that verb? Is Is it active or passive? Passive. You have been made complete. So who's the actor there? Not us. God is the one who made us complete. And then notice the, the, the way that that's described. So the summary description, I think, is you have been made complete. The four ways that it's described is that, verse, verse 11, you were also circumcised. You see again? It's passive. God circumcised your heart. Verse 12, having been buried with Him. Again, a passive. And then, that is that we have been baptized by the Spirit. And then you were also raised up with Him. Again, passive. God's the actor here. And then verse 13, He made you alive. So that's the active voice of the verb, but it shows us who the subject is. It's God. God's the one who did all these things. I'd encourage you this week to take some time to reflect on God's God's, um, activity in your salvation. How God did the work in bringing you to Himself. Christ is sufficient to bring us to completion. And then secondly, Christ is sufficient to accomplish the impossible. There are three ways that we see this in the text. First, at the end of verse 13, He forgave our trespasses. He forgave our trespasses. He forgave our transgressions. We were dead, verse 13 says. We were enslaved. We stood condemned before God because of the violations that we had committed against His laws. That's what a trespass is, a transgression. He said, don't come beyond this point. We went beyond the point. He said, don't do this. We did it. And yet Christ did the impossible. He forgave our trespasses. And the reason I say impossible is because of the story of the rich young ruler. Do you remember? He came to Jesus about salvation. And yet he went away sad because he was unwilling to submit to Jesus. And Jesus effectively said, it is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, he didn't say it in those terms. He said it's, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than to, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. In other words, saying, it's impossible. It can't happen. And that's true. It is a human impossibility for us to be made complete. It is humanly impossible for us to forgive ourselves of our, or to, to force God to forgive our trespasses. 
But Jesus would go on to say, when the disciple says, then who can be saved? If it's impossible for even this one to enter the kingdom of God, then who is it that can be saved? Do you remember Jesus' response? With people, with man, it's impossible. But with God, what? All things are possible with God. So that's why I say Christ can do what is impossible. What is humanly impossible, Christ can do. He can forgive us our trespasses. He can forgive us our transgressions. And if you don't think that your trespasses were that big of a deal, maybe you were saved when you were young. Then consider verse 14 with me. Because here we see the second way that he accomplished the impossible or second um, description that he gives here. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us and he's taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. The reality of our life apart from Christ is that we have this certificate of indebtedness. Legally, we are liable for all the sins that we have committed before the Holy God. Consider what it will be like in the courtroom of God. With this certificate of indebtedness, or we could say even a whole book of our deeds, God will remind us of every wicked deed which we have done, every wicked word that we have said, every wicked sin that we have thought. So that when we stand in the courtroom of God's justice, we will be speechless. Because the stack of evidence against us will condemn us. Listen to Romans 3, 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, God's going to take the law, show us what we were supposed to do, and put that next to what we did. Say, see, these are where you messed up. You violated my law. You failed. So that, Romans says, every mouth will be closed. We will stand speechless before God on the day of judgment. And yet, so consider that certificate of indebtedness against you. And then consider the end of verse 14 again. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, it's not that he burns up all of our wicked deeds but rather that he renders them invalid. And how does he do that? The end of the verse says that he nails them to the cross. God the Father nails our wicked deeds to the cross. Effectively, he takes the record of our debt and he nails it to the cross on Jesus. Jesus takes upon himself our sin so that after the fact, if we were to open up the record of our debts, and see all the violations against God that we had committed, where God had clearly revealed His commands to us, and we violated. The black marks of our sin would be overwhelming, and yet they would be covered with the stamp that was dipped in the blood of Christ that read paid in full on every single one of them. 
there's no more that we have to say. There's more, no more that we have to do. God has taken our sins out of the way by nailing the record of our debts to the cross with Jesus. So we are indebted to God by virtue of our sins and are under the condemnation of God, deserving of eternal death, but God has taken the record of that debt, nailed it to the cross in the person of Jesus so that every single one of your debts that was listed in your record, past, present, and future, were all paid in full by Christ. And He no longer counts those sins against you. So we have an amazing God, don't we? We have an amazing Savior. And yet, He doesn't stop there. He doesn't simply forgive our trespasses and cancel out out our indebtedness to Him. He also disarms our opponents in verse 15. When He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. This disarming happened at the cross, which if you think about it, is one of the great ironies of all history. Because it was at the cross where it looked to us like the opponents of God were actually disarming God because they killed Jesus. It looked like they had won. Christ's enemies had stripped Jesus and mocked Him and paraded Him through the town as if they were the conquering kings and He was the defeated king. And here's the great irony, is that in His death, which looked like a defeat, He was actually stripping and mocking and parading the rulers and authorities around for all to see. Because they actually were the ones who were being defeated. Now, I'm not talking about physical people. When he's talking about rulers and authorities here, he's talking about the demons. So they think they're winning as they're working through Pilate and and, and the Roman soldiers and the Jews. The demons think they're winning. And yet, actually, in Christ's death, he's actually disarming them and parading them through the town as defeated foes. The greatest tragedy in all of history, the death of Jesus, was actually the greatest triumph, wasn't it? Because he defeated sin and Satan at the cross. He, he, he conquered death through the resurrection. And so the defeat of our enemies at the cross means our guaranteed victory. This is why we don't have to fear if we are in Christ. We don't have to fear our enemies because their victories are only short-lived So there will be a struggle against sin and temptation in this life. But the victory is sure because Christ has already given the death blow. It's only a matter of time before Satan and his his minions are fully defeated. Think about two principles here to apply to our lives. Number one, Christ is all we need. Christ is all we need. Such a, such a simple truth, isn't it? But such a difficult one to embrace. Why is that? Why is it that we can't just accept the naked truth of God that Christ is all that we need? Why do we have to, to put clothes on it? Why do we have to, to, to make it better? Why do we have to modify and improve and change and revamp? And I think the nature of us as individuals is that we don't like to take things at face value. It's hard for us to believe that Christ is all we need. 
Maybe we need to make up our own set of rules. Maybe we need to force them on ourselves and others. Maybe we need to measure our godliness by how we obey those rules. And the Holy Spirit is reminding us today, and I think next week as well, that we need none of those things. Not that rules are bad in and of themselves. We'll talk about that more. But, but, but we need Christ and Him alone. I mean, who is Christ? And what has He told us to do? That's all that we need for life and godliness. Several years ago, I coached a, a men's softball team, and, and my primary emphasis was on playing according to the fundamentals. And yet there are always guys, you, you've been on any sports team, you know. There are always guys who like to be flashy. Maybe you saw in the military with other, with other soldiers. They like to be flashy. So instead of sticking to the fundamentals in baseball instead of, or, or softball, instead of setting and throwing the ball to the first baseman, the shortstop would kind of wait till the very last second and then throw a bullet. And do you know what happens when you wait till the last second and try to throw a bullet and you're an amateur? You often throw it wild. Okay? And they make it to second base. Instead of being out, they, they actually get an extra base. Or the outfielder, instead of trying to catch the ball with two hands, one with the glove and one to protect in case the ball comes out, they would be a little flashy just out there showboating it with one hand. Or a base runner trying to go for an extra base when we needed to avoid an out. Whatever the case, they get away from the fundamentals. And as Christians, we need to be frequently reminded to go back to the basics, don't we? It's not about being flashy. It's not about something new that we've got to add to it to make it a little bit more exciting or a little bit more palatable. It's not about artificial structures that we have to set up. It's not about this building. It's not about our programs. Our relationship with God as individuals and as a church comes down to something as simple as trusting in Christ alone and what He's told us to do. Too many times we want to doctor that up. Too, too many times it's not enough for us. We need something else. And if we get away from that, then we're going to fail in this second area, which is that we must not be captured by empty religion. Oh, how subtle the shift is from true religion to false religion. Oh, how subtle the shift is from staying on course to ending up way off course. For us to go off course, we only need to buy into a subtle error error for a long period of time. Just initially buy into it. You start off in that one degree separation from where we ought to be, and before long we are way off base. And that's the nature of empty religion. It is error mixed with truth so that if we are not rooted and grounded in the Word of God and what is our true north, then we will be tossed here and there by every wind and wave of doctrine. Every false doctrine that comes, we're going to be like shifting sand. We're going to be like our feet are on shifting sand. We can't stay stable. What starts out as maybe a harmless marginalization of Christ and His priorities turns into false religion. What starts out maybe for us is, you know, maybe something that's more likely for us is that we set up guardrails for ourselves and for others. What starts out as a guardrail to keep us from sin actually keeps us from godliness. Because we, like the Pharisees, have gone actually too far. 
And we've actually made this the measure of spirituality. My guardrail is the measure of spirituality rather than what Christ said. The empty religion of the false teachers in Paul's day are going to be explored more next week in the last part of chapter 2. And I've already um, alluded to that many times. So be here next week. It'll be a great time for us to study the Word together. But for now, I think we need to remember that Christ is all that we need for life and godliness. If we can stick to that truth, if we can keep focused on Him and what He requires of us, then, then we will be less likely to be pulled away by every, every false religion that comes around, every empty religion that says, you know what, maybe need a little bit more. Christ is all that we need. Let's pray. Father, we once were lost in darkest night and, and thought we knew the way and the sin that we had in our lives was a joy to us. We took pleasure in it. But it actually led to the grave. We had no hope until You would call us, pull us out from being rebels of Your will to being part of Your family, being baptized in the Spirit into Your body, baptized by the Spirit into Your body. And so, Lord, we praise You that all we have is Christ. He was all that we needed to come to initial salvation. He is all that we need for our ongoing salvation. And He's all that we will need for our final salvation. So, Lord, would You recalibrate our focus once again and just renew our minds, bring them back into, um, into focus so that we don't get drawn away by some apparent forms of godliness that are out there that are actually keeping us from godliness. Lord, get, get us back on the path towards, towards um, truth and righteousness and help us to bring al- others along with us. Lord, may we continue to focus on the important doctrines of Your Word so that we are not drawn away and so that we do know what we believe and why we believe it and how it should apply to our lives. Lord, strengthen us for our responsibility this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.